I am Citizen Forty Four. You are listening to Citizen Forty Four with Mark Aaronsberg. Time to make money. There's a story to sell, and it ain't all bees and honey. Hearts to break and blood to spill, and pain to inflict. That's why they call me the love addict. Love addict. Hey, everybody. Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen Forty Four. This is show number one hundred and five. My guest today is Chris Catchpole. Chris is the executive creative director at Dentsu in Saigon. He's a very talented guy, passionate, loves advertising, and is a kick-ass illustrator. He's also a super nice guy who I happened to meet, I think it was last year, through my neighbor, Mr. Hui, when I lived above Luna Sushi. We all got together at a super cool, old-school speakeasy in downtown Saigon. Had a really fun time together, and uh, slowly we built a nice relationship, and we really enjoy each other's company, talking about advertising, creativity, kids, family, life, all that. Super fun to have him on the show, and not only is Chris on the show, but it's a big show. It's a big birthday show. My father will be 84 on Tuesday, July 19th, and as I mentioned in our conversation, It only occurred to me this year that we were both born on the 19th, not July. I'm born on November 19th, but I was also told by a guest that the number 19 is significant. There are 19 chakra points on the planet, so there's some kind of powerful indications around that number, or there isn't. I don't know. But regardless, it's his birthday, so this is the big birthday show. Haven't had a big birthday show since the last big birthday show, and I don't know whose birthday that was. A big birthday show for my father, who is moving tomorrow. He lost my mother, his wife, two years ago. So he's been on his own, other than his dog, Gus. But he did something really bold. My sister convinced him to sell his townhouse and move into an assisted living facility where he would have an apartment and meet new people I guess there's a couple of restaurants on site there. He'll have a shared place where he can do his art with other artists so he can continue painting and drawing and do all that kind of stuff. And he's pretty much a social butterfly anyway. He was hesitant about it at first, but he miraculously sold the townhouse in about a week and he's moving tomorrow, kind of starting a whole new life, all kinds of new opportunities and experiences And fortunately, his health is not too bad, other than a blown out knee that needs to be replaced that he's kind of on a waiting list for. But his spirits are pretty good. He's a little stressed out right now. He went from the house we lived in in Mission Hills, California. They scaled that down to their townhouse in Encino. But now he's moving to something half the size, you know, like an apartment. And they've got 60 years of accumulation of stuff. It makes me really appreciate that I have literally three boxes of things, which I'll get to. That's another story, but I'll get to that. So anyway, dad's moving tomorrow around 10 a.m. And more power to him. If he gets to take his dog, Gus, his friends will come visit him. It's just going to be easier for him. He's closer to Kaiser. 
He still drives. Yeah, it'll be good. That's where he'll finish out his business. I've got him coming up next right here on the show. Gave him a call yesterday with Lean Ann. That's also part of the new stuff with me. New story, new stuff. Very exciting. I went through a pretty magnificent change last month. I gave notice at my job in Saigon. I resigned after a year and a half for a few reasons. The main reason was that I wanted to move in with Lean Ann and really cement this thing. After a somewhat tumultuous relationship over two and a half years, in between breaking up 40 times. But uh, that's where I am now. I gave up my job. I gave up my apartment. But I'm not attached, overly attached. I cling to nothing. And uh, Lean Ann had broken up with me. I found somebody else, a wonderful woman, really fantastic, but not my cup of tea, man. A super nice lady would make a great friend, but that was not going to happen after I terminated the relationship. But some really crazy things happened. While we were together, I was supposed to have dinner with Pink. Now, Pink is Lean Ann's cousin. I lived with both of them shortly after the first round of the pandemic. I wasn't working. I couldn't afford to keep my apartment. And Lean Ann and Pink allowed me to move in with them in their apartment in District 2. And it was amazing, super fun for about 97% of that experience until I left in a huff over something that happened with Lean Ann. But we did really well together, except some things, you know, we've both had to do some growing up, some maturing, some deepening of our appreciation for each other and lack of egos and other associated behaviors. Anyway, so I was with Jin. We spent Ted Holiday together at her parents Spent a couple of nights on the beach. Had a very nice time. Just not a, not a love connection. Not the chemistry. So I cut it off. It was agonizing. I did so much research to quantify that I needed to do this, not just for me, but for her. To not drag someone through a, a long ordeal that had no future. I didn't want to do that to myself either. Life is short. But while we were together... Pink, my former roommate, Lee Nance cousin, invited me to go have dinner at this Hong Kong-style steam restaurant in the Saigon Center. It's really a delicious take on the walk. Instead of oil, everything is steamed, and it's really delicious and healthy. And anyway, Pink asked me to meet her at whatever, 7 o'clock. I go, and I sit down. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. She's not showing up. I text her. She said she's running late. And then... Lean Ann's best friend, Yom, walks in, and she waves me over to a much larger table that will accommodate like 12 people. I'm obviously a little perplexed now. I said, hey, you know, I'm here to meet Pink. What are you doing here? She said, well, there's a surprise for you. I said, a surprise? What kind of surprise? And she kind of backpedaled and changed the subject, and we're talking about Lean Ann. I told her that I was in a new relationship and that it was going pretty well, and and then we were talking about Lean Ann, and she was talking about going to Kwangai, where Lean Ann is living with her sister and her family, which is in the central portion of Vietnam. She left Saigon because she had to close her tourism business due to COVID, understandably so. So she's been there like a year and a half or something like that. Anyway, we discussed going on vacation together there. I thought she'd be a good buffer. Her two nieces, Mia and Morphle, are completely head over heels attached to me. And, you know, I'm part of the family, regardless of what the relationship was between Lean Ann and I at the time. We still have this undeniable bond that could never be broken. So 
I agreed. Yeah, let's go on a vacation together. I think we can pitch this to Lean Ann. I won't be a threat in that way. And then I come back to, so what's the surprise? It's not my birthday. What's going on? She said, you'll see. And a couple of minutes later, the entire family from Kwang Ai come walking in the restaurant, which includes Lean Ann, her sister, her sister's husband, their two kids, Pink, and Pink's mom. I'm jaw dropped. Of course, my eyes lock with Lean Ann. I hadn't seen her in a while. Our last conversation was not good at all. But there's some undeniable, some kind of something. We're just super hot for each other. And our chemistry is off the rails, like one of those rock and roll relationships, kind of a love-hate, challenging and difficult. But when it's good, it's fucking stupid good. And when it's bad, it's fucking stupid bad. But she was very kind and cordial. And I think we maybe shook hands, something like that. But the kids were blown away, especially Mia. Mia is now four. Morphal is a year and a half. Morphal has now really become close to me. But Mia has always been close to me, a very deep relationship, one of these perhaps pre-existing relationships. So they spent a week here, and it was a wonderful week. It was funny because Jin mentioned to me she thought that the family was trying to get us back together, and that's why they all came which I assured her was not true. And still to this day, I don't believe that it was true. I convinced Jin that I'm not interested in Lean Ann. And I wasn't. I behaved gentlemanly, and there was never any indication of us reconnecting in that way or anything like that. But on the last day we were together, myself and her and her sister and her sister's husband and the two kids and her friend Yom and Pink all got in one of those hop-on, hop-off tour buses in downtown Saigon, had a really good time. And then it was time to say goodbye to Lean Ann. And we put our hands together, no big deal. But then we interlocked fingers. But again, I didn't do anything. She didn't do anything other than both of us walking with the children hand in hand, not us holding hands, but holding hands with Mia and Morphal, and how comfortable and lovely that felt. But still, I was committed to my relationship, even though there were some things about it that I was not comfortable with and was not sold on. But the nicest, nicest, sweetest girl you could ever meet, honestly. It's the last night we interlock fingers and that chemistry started flowing. But I let go of it. I didn't go with them to the airport in the morning, which was strange. I'm used to seeing her off, but I didn't go. But we started communicating and I let her know that Jin did not make me feel the way she made me feel. I would ride my motorbike as fast as I could to get to District 2 to be with Lean Ann. I couldn't wait to wake up in the morning to be with Lean Ann. I didn't feel those things with Jin. I wasn't in a hurry to see her. I wasn't excited to be with her. I mean, I was happy to be with her, but I wasn't excited. And I told Lean Ann that, and something happened when I told her that. And then I was fully aware that I needed to terminate my relationship with Jin, regardless of whether Lean Ann and I were going to get together. I needed to let Jin and myself off the hook. Kind of like when I got divorced. Someone's got to pull the trigger. And Jin told me many times that she was in love with me. And I told her, quite honestly, I was not in love with her. I loved her, but not in love. So anyway, I broke up with Jin and uh, I let Lean Ann know. And then things started percolating and we ended up getting back together. Again, she lives in Kwang Ai. 
I went for Mia's birthday and we were together. But something happened that helped me solidify this. She's never been in, I guess, what would be considered a 100% committed relationship. And I had this epiphany that I needed to get her to pinky swear that we're going to do all the work and not run away from each other anymore. No more fight, flight, or freeze. If we're going to do this, we're going to do this for real now. And that she has to 100% trust me and believe that I'm in this for the long haul. And it worked. The pinky swear triggered something in her mind that had never been triggered before. And it started building a real foundation. And that's why I'm here now living with her. That was part of this initial process of eradicating all the previous mistrust and things that immobilized us and kept us from what we both really wanted, which is to be together forever. So here I am, and things are so, so good. Really, honestly, amazing. Here's my dad. Hey there, Norm, it's your birthday, and everything will be okay. Because you're the greatest Norman A. Come on, everyone. Let's sing today. Just want to wish Norm a very happy, healthy birthday. He's a great guy, and I'm so proud to call him my friend. Happy, happy birthday, Norm. Hey, Dad. Hey, what's happening? Not too much. What's going on over there in Encino, California? I'm sitting having coffee with Sandy and her mother. And I have to get home and get ready for tomorrow. Right, so you're moving tomorrow. What time is that going down? About 10, 10.30. Okay. And you got everybody lined up? You're just going to follow a truck over there? Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a special guest on the show today. And we have a little something for you if you have a couple of minutes. Do you have a minute or two? Right now? Yeah, right now, while I'm talking to you right now. Yeah, okay. How do I get on it? How do you get on what? Do I just stay on it right now? Yeah. you stay on the phone? Yeah, you're on the show right now. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, you do now. Oh, okay. That's cool. Your birthday's coming up in a couple of days on the 19th. Right. I'll be 38. What? I can't hear you. I'm sorry. What did you say? You're going to be how old? 138. Okay. <laughs> You're going to be 84 on the 19th? Yes. It's the 17th here in Vietnam, which means it's the 16th there now. So in three days, today is Monday here. Right now, it's Sunday. So your birthday's on Tuesday? Yeah. You know what's really weird? It's only this year that I came to realize that both of our birthdays are on the 19th. Yeah, I know. You told me before. Yeah, I know, but I never told you on the show. I don't think I told you on the show. Don't ever tell me again. Okay. I have a special guest uh, on the show today, and uh, I'm really happy. They've never been on the show. Their laugh is at the very end of almost every show for the past two years. So they wanted to help me out with a happy birthday. So hang on a second. Okay. On three. One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear dad. Happy birthday to you.
Thank you. So dad, it's Lean Ann. I know you've only spoken once on the phone and I know you were having trouble hearing her because she was speaking very softly and she is not a soft speaker, by the way. She has plenty of voice. Okay. So anyway, she just wanted to say hello to you and I'm just gonna get off of here for a second. Hi. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Fine, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. We were on the beach this afternoon and we just got home and call you. Thank you, that's very sweet. <laughs> I saw your picture. You're adorable. You're very pretty. Oh, thank you. So sweet. Okay, so I got to tell you the story real quick. Okay, tell us. I don't want to stay away from these people too long. It's very rude, but let me tell you. I went to the bank yesterday to deposit just a few bucks because somebody picked up the safe because I can't carry it. It's huge. Yeah. So I'm in the bank, and after I make my deposit, I'm leaving, and this guy's in his 60s, well-groomed, well-dressed and everything. I turn around to leave. He says, you know what? I said, no, what? He says, you are really beautiful. I said, excuse me? He says, no, really. You're really beautiful. I said, thank you. And I left. Another man <laughs> said funny? you were beautiful. I think it's awesome that he could do that for you. Because most men feel emasculated expressing was, themselves. He's probably, he was probably gay. Well, whether he was gay or not is irrelevant. Beautiful is not necessarily about your looks. Maybe he saw something else in you besides yeah. your good looks. That's fine. Oh. I don't want to hear the whole thing. Yeah, so how did it make you feel when he said that to you? Neither one way or another. So you just didn't give a shit that he said you were beautiful? No. Nah. Okay. So you're, <laughs> you're, you're there with Sandy? Yeah. Hold on. Hi. Hello? How are you, Sandy? I'm good. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear, Sandy. And so can Lean Ann. She can hear you loud and clear. Hey, Lean Ann, Sandy. Sandy, Lean Ann. Hi, Sandy. Hi. How are you? I've seen you in pictures. Oh, you also see. <laughs> Everybody's seen you in pictures. very pretty lady. Thank you. <laughs> She's a little embarrassed. She's never done this before, and I kind of forced her to get on the mic with me. Uh, it's a special show. It's show number 105. It's Dad's big 84th birthday. You're on the show now, Sandy. I'm so happy to hear oh, your voice. No. Yeah, yeah, you're on the show. Good Out talking to, to you. Yeah, thanks for taking my dad to ping pong for Chinese food for his birthday yesterday. And also, we're having a little party here. Okay, take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Hi. Hi, I don't want to interrupt your party anymore. We just want to say it's happy. Not a card game. I said your party. My God, you're 84. Oh, I you said card game. Yeah, I know, you're 105. <laughs> you can't hear anymore. So I hope you have a great birthday, Dad. Much love to you from us here in Vietnam. Thank you. I'll call you on your actual birthday. Your girlfriend sounds very sweet. She's incredible. I'm the luckiest man on the planet. Okay. All right. I love you. Love Take you too. Care. Say bye, Lean Ann. Bye. Love you. Thank you, honey. You too. See you, Dad. Bye. Bye.
Well, hi, Mark and Norm. This is Jean Burnett from Ashland, Oregon, wishing Norm a happy 84th birthday. Holy moly, I just turned 65. I'm catching up with you, Norm, hoping that you have a great day and a great year. And you too, Marky Mark, you have a great day and a great year. Send in love from Ashland, Oregon. Bye, guys. Chris Catchpole, my British brother from another mother. Hi, Mark. So nice to see you, man. You too, pal. It really is. Very much so. We've been trying to do this for a while. We have. But you're a busy guy. You left Vietnam during the height of COVID. Yeah. And you haven't been able to get back. And you haven't been able to see your family here, your wife and your two little kids. So there's been a bit of mania with your life lately. Uh, yeah. You've hit me smack in the face with a big punch about reminding me that my family's not here yet or I'm not with them yet. I left at the most ridiculous time possible. It was the best time possible everyone told me and it was the worst time possible I've ever realized subsequently. Isn't that a Charles Dickens line? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Yeah. You know, I have five children. I have three grown up children in the UK and I have two small children in Vietnam. My eldest daughter is called Olivia, and she was here on Friday night. In I've got an apartment in London now. And we went to a comedy club. We had a brilliant night. And a little like your daughter, I mean, I listened to you and your daughter's podcast. And um, isn't it quite amazing, the words that come out and the thinking that comes out of their mouths? I mean, they're really smart, aren't they? Yeah, truly. We always want the best for our kids, but they just come a moment where... All that depositing of information and, and showing them and taking them to places and, and helping them think. And then one day they disagree with you. And it's like, what do you mean you disagree with me? You, you, no, 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 I'm your dad. You're meant to just agree with everything I say because I'm the oracle of everything and, and I know everything. But you don't because we make it up as we go along because we don't know everything. And the day that they point out, actually, dad, that's not quite right. What? And you think, how dare you disagree with me? All the way through those years, you've been hopefully been putting them in a place when they do have their own thoughts and their own thinking. And it was fascinating to listen to your daughter. Your daughter knows more about what Facebook is doing than you or I do. For sure. Yeah, so, I mean, that was amazing listening to her. I thought, yeah, well, that all makes sense. But hang on a second, this lass is only 21. And again, it reminded me, don't judge people by some numbers. So we shouldn't be judging you by your two numbers and not judging me by my two numbers and judging her by her two numbers or judging my little children now by their one number. Actually, I could say and judging the lady I've just done a portrait for by her three numbers. She has three numbers. What are those numbers? 101. Wow. Well, you know, that's very funny because I just released show number 101 yesterday. Yeah, and this is Mike Brzezowski. Yeah. Do you know him? No, but I cried at the show. <laughs> the bit that made me well up was when Mike was talking about Vietnam and how he fell in love with Vietnam because his words could have come out of my mouth and the, word, the words that I talk about Vietnam could have come out of his mouth because I think we're pretty much the same. I've never met him. I don't know him. But he had that thing when he said that... And I described the same. When I first set foot in Vietnam, I fell in love, not with my wife at that point. I fell in love with the country. Um, I'd left a country, when I'm back in it now, where the drive was to make money. And assuming that the more money you make, the happier you're going to be. 
because you're going to have a bigger house, you can have more cars, you can have fancier holidays, you can have a really expensive watch and then a really, really expensive watch. And then you're going to get a really, 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 really expensive watch because you're being judged by the material things. Um, when I got to Vietnam, um, I remember we were pitching to Coke at the time. I went, I'll get off work in a minute and we'll get onto this book. But because Coke's all about happiness, I came up with an idea. It was called Choose Happy. And, and I spoke to the MD and said, well, you know, what are the ideas? I said, well, one of them is a direction called Choose Happy. It's about choosing happiness. Uh, as basically, you can wake up in the morning. And really, it's up to you how happy you're going to be today. And he was a deeply unpleasant man. In fact, I've described him as not human. But nonetheless, shouted and screamed at me. I could feel his spit on my face. And I won't repeat the expletives, but basically, it was, this was absolute nonsense. He said, absolutely ridiculous. How could you possibly think that that would be a concept? I mean, there's something that people do. He said, you think the person on the street corner selling bammies is happy? He said, you think that the people on, on the Zeon bikes waiting for another ride so they can eat lunch are happy? And I said, yes, they are. In fact, they're probably an awful lot happier than the people who are earning 100 grand a year but sat on the train in the morning trying to get a seat, pushing old people out of the way so they could get there first. I said, it's not about the dollar signs and the pound signs and whatever signs, even the VND signs. I mean, you have to look at each day and find the good bits in each day if you want to. And that's what's going to make you happy. What made me happy yesterday was listening to the guy talking about Vietnam, Michael, and the moments, the pivotal moments of like when he met the school kids and the school kids wanted to learn English. They didn't want money off him. They wanted to learn English, wanted to practice their English with him. I've had those moments. Myself and my dad had gone to Kai Bay. After my mum died, we both still got our dads. My dad's 77 now. Um, my dad used to come to Vietnam twice a year uh, for about maybe five years. Uh, and then COVID kind of struck and he's dying to get back. But he can't come back yet. And we were sat in Kai Bay, which is down in Mekong Delta. My best mate in Vietnam was a guy called Ni. And Ni is a Seon guy. Um, Ni wouldn't even understand what the word illiterate meant, but basically he can't read and write. And so consequently, it's been very tricky for him to join Grab because he can't read the app. Um, he, he struggles. If you tell him where to go, he knows where it is. But can he read the street sign? No. He'll know the shapes, I'm sure, but he can't write. I'd literally known Ni from about my first month in Vietnam. He was the angry Seon guy. I used to try to avoid walking past him because he'd always attack me. With, he wanted me to take his Zeom. You come with me. I, I take you. I take you. I walked everywhere. I didn't want to go on a Zeom. I'm going to be ripped off anyway. Eventually, I gave in one evening and he did. He took me to Mekong Delta for a day and I didn't pay him very much. And I felt guilty ever since. And then we just hung out together. And with his limited English and my teeny bit of Vietnamese, we got by. When I left Vietnam to go to China... I got him a bank account so I could pay money in for him. But he couldn't fill in the form for the bank account. Let me carry on to, to Kai Bay. The point of Kai Bay was that um, it was an incredibly hot day. We'd gone to see Ni's family. Dad wanted to see Ni's wife and Ni's two sons. Um, there was one little cheeky story. At the back of Ni's house, there was a pigsty. Okay. Uh, it's a very, very simple house. In the back of it is a pigsty with the most enormous pig you've ever seen in the pigsty. Okay. And they were talking about basically that the pig 
uh, was there. It's a female pig and it was bred. And it was bred to produce piglets. And they sold the piglets. And now I'm a bit squeamish and I said, they're not to eat, are they? And he said, no, 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 no. No, other people, they want to breed pigs themselves. So they, they'll make them grow up and then they'll breed pigs. It's basically a, it's an industry. Okay. I said, well, I said so uh, how many pigs do they have? Oh, about 12 or 13 pigs every three months. And I said, how much are they? So about one million per pig. <laughs> I calculated that the pig earned more than needed. <laughs> the pig was more lucrative. Because I knew roughly how much knee got each month. The pig earned more <laughs> by having piglets. Anyway, knee has been my best mate ever since. Even in China, I sent him, myself and an Australian guy, we sent him money to buy a new motorbike when his broke down. If a Zeon guy doesn't have a motorbike, how is he going to earn money? So we bought him a new motorbike. And they even sent him bits and pieces now. Not as handouts, just as helpouts. Sometimes I know when he is bloody hungry, mate. But I know that when he asks, he really, really needs. Right. Me and Dad went to um, walk through Kaibei, and uh, we sat down because it was an incredibly hot day, and we had um, a, a sugar cane. And uh, we didn't know it, but just happened to sit directly opposite a school, a secondary school. And it was about three or half three whenever they come out. And they were really happy to see us, and they were pushing each other out of the way so they could see the two weird white people, dude, you know, what the hell are you doing here? And I've had a similar thing in um, Tai Bin, which is up near Haiphong. Uh, my wife is Vietnamese, and um, she's from up there. So she spent the first six years of her life there. And both her grandma and granddad, two grandma and granddads, they live basically about two or three miles apart. And her granddad on her dad's side died years ago. Sadly, her grandma on her mum's side died in January or February this year. She had some kind of cancer or tumor. I can't remember what it was. She didn't last long. It literally, I think, about three months between finding out and finally leaving. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful old lady. My wife went to see her just a couple of weeks before she died. I think, again, I get choked up by a lot of things, but she said one thing, which was that she wanted to live longer so she could see our children more. She'd met them and she loved them. And, and I got the most beautiful photographs of her with them. There's one in particular where Bella is sat on her step and she sat on the chair next to Bella. And she's looking down at Bella, holding Bella's bottle. And Bella looks very proud, very, very strong. And Grandma is just, the love in her eyes is just, oh, it makes you weep. But again, I used to go to their villages. So the villages are in the middle of nowhere. And you go past a secondary school and they all come charging out to see you and pointing. And my wife said, they probably really haven't ever seen anyone looks like you before, Chris. <laughs> it's rare, but it's, it's lovely. And I'm super polite to them and I'm very sweet to them when, you know, you have to be happy because they are, they're utterly delighted. Your spaceman has <laughs> just come and landed. And that's what Vietnam is. It's a land of delight. When Mike was talking, I thought, yeah, I've been there. I've been there, and I want to go back and do that again. And that's probably why I stayed there nine years. Um, I'll be back. I love it. It's a wonderful country, and you obviously do too, the way that you speak. Yeah. I think the three of us share something. We're from far different cultures, and when we arrived here, something happened, a shift. And, you know, I taught a little bit here a few times, and not unlike my experience in Thailand, the children here are incredibly sweet and open, and it's a phenomenal experience to be amongst humans 
who are generally happy. What I have found is because of the lack of education here, people live closer to their heart. They know from a core existence because their foundation is family and each other and not things or concepts or obscurity. It's really grounded. These people are grounded. It's why they're resilient. It's why they've been able to maintain happiness through a lot of catastrophe, including COVID recently. And it shows up in their demeanor every day. And I've mentioned this on a couple of shows, even on the last show, the people that own the sushi bar, Thu and Mr. Lin, I'd say, how are you today? And she says, I'm great every day. But I'd say, well, you're not great every minute of the day, but they are so appreciative of the smallest things in life, having family and friends food and clothing and just a simple roof over their head and nothing over the top. You know, I can't express enough to my listening audience how fulfilling it is to know that having less is more. Not having nothing, not struggling to get your bare basics, but to just have what you need and the rest is just a surprise. So yes, we have shared those experiences. I high five kids all day long up and down the street. Anybody who makes eye contact with me, I say sin chow to. People are very curious here. They're unafraid here. They want to engage. Even if they cannot speak to you, they will muster up the minimalist of English to communicate with you just to make that connection. And it's really quite beautiful. So yes, I too was moved by listening to Michael and the experiences that grabbed him. And of course, it was based on children the smartest and most innocent people of the world who unfortunately have to take on some of the worst pain and suffering, which is why he has Blue Dragon. It's a shame that it has to exist, but thank goodness that it does. And this segues pretty nicely into something that you've done. You produced this book for your children. And I had mentioned to you, I think it was two years ago, I was looking for a Father's Day present for my father. And I trust the download. I trust that I'm given everything I need. So I got on Amazon and I happened upon this book called Choose Your Own Adulthood. And it was written by this man who wrote a letter to his daughter just before she left to go to college. And it was just words of wisdom, giving her a path to navigate through upcoming situations that will happen for her. And It turned into a New York Times bestselling book, which yours could be as well, based on the value in the messaging. So I bought this for my father, and this is so my father. He read the book. He really liked it. He goes, yeah, that has nothing to do with me. So I realized it was somewhat in futility. Like I gave him one of the discs from the audio version of Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. And I thought he'd really love it. So I mailed it to him to LA from San Francisco because we had had this really incredible talk about spirituality on the telephone one day because I told him that I had just finished reading the first 30 pages of Conversations with God and found gratitude, the magic keys that get you everything that you could possibly want and be happy for the rest of your life. Yeah. So I told him about this and it unlocked some kind of thing for him to want to communicate with me in a way that he never had before. Yeah. So on that note, I decided to send him a CD, an audio CD. And the most fantastic thing happened. When it showed up there, it showed up there broken in half. And I realized immediately what that message was which is you cannot impose your will on anybody. 
People need to find out things for themselves. I cannot change my father. Completely. So I got it. I realized it in that moment that he's going to do what he's going to do. Exactly. And more so because it's a generational thing. I mean, not casting stuff off, not saying that's an excuse, but it's a reality. Right. You reach a point in your life where you think, I've thought of some quite interesting things along the way. I should write them down. Now, um, in 2012, so nine years ago, almost 10 years ago, I got a job in Vietnam. And this meant rather than just the commute each week to Amsterdam, where I was working at the time from London, where I used to see my children and my ex-wife every weekend uh, for a year. Now I was going to be seeing them every four months, maybe six months. And um, this didn't go down well with ex-wife, obviously. And then uh, um, that wife became ex-wife through divorce. and uh, And it was... Very difficult time. Um, I've explained to friends here recently that subsequently, after because it, it all went very, very sour, and I felt atomized. Literally, my entire system has been broken up into each atom and uh, and spread all the way around everywhere. And I've had to go and collect and find them and probably put myself back together. Luckily, I have a wonderful Vietnamese wife, Nim, who's helped me find all those pieces. Not all. And I'm back together in a different way. I'm reborn because of her. And I'm reborn because of Bella and Silas, my new children. But there's a lot of me missing um, because it, it's, it does shatter you. Um, uh, divorce is not a pleasant thing. Um, anyway, so my three children were in the UK. So I've got Olivia, who's 25. I've got Poppy, who's 23. She works in fashion. Uh, and I've got Harry, who's 20. And he's a drummer. He's in music school. He's in about five different bands. He's incredibly talented. Uh, and Poppy is incredibly smart, and, and Olivia is horrendously rude and fantastic for it. Um, like a young female version of me who's even faster, and she's amazing, but also tremendously smart. It's like, God almighty, where did all this come from, all this intellect? Um, anyway, uh, I realized that I had all these sound bites in my head, and I wasn't with them. I wasn't with them. I also went through, after the divorce, that's when all the nastiness started. And there really were about a couple of years when there was a lot of poison in them. And you can't suck that out. You just have to let it seep out. Uh, and I thought one way to do that was to show them that actually I did care about them. I hadn't left them. And I cared about them every single day. And every single day I wrote down a so-called life lesson. There are 365 in this book. The small sound bites. I try to communicate the things I've learned along the way. I'm at least halfway through my life, mate. We both are. We're at least halfway through our life. We don't know stuff now. We probably never will. Um, it's not a jaw-dropping book that people are going to go, oh my God, everyone has to read this. What I would say is that every single parent in the world could write their own. It's not about buying this book or this book about becoming famous. It's about every parent can write one of these. It took me 18 months. The 365 came and went, I'm afraid. It's supposed to be every day for a year, and it took 18 months. And then it took me another year mucking around with it and trying to come up with other ones, and I realized it were duplicates. And then one evening, I thought, I have to finish this. And I went through the entire thing. It took me about five hours going through editing. It's not that long at the end of the day, but make sure there were no repetitions and no spelling mistakes. 
And my eldest daughter, about two or three months later, after I got it printed and sent to her, she said, Dad, you know, there's a spelling mistake on number 273. It's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I went straight through it. I thought, oh, for fuck's sake. I tried so hard, but I missed that one. Miss one. What was the number? I think it's 273. Or it might be 276. I should have a look. We're going to look at this book and we're going to choose some numbers. Random. I don't believe in random. I think the word random is actually synchronicity wrapped in doubt. I think the randomness is our own perception of not really understanding that things are intentional. Yeah. I think we're going to come up with some kind of a way to go through this so we can share some of it and have a little fun with it. Yeah. So I've got five children. Three of them can read. Two of them will be able to read soon. If I had six copies printed, I've got one here. I wanted something that they could refer back to. I designed a front cover. I wrote messages on the reverse that says, from a dad to his children, from someone who has lived to those who are about to, from a guy who wants to pass on what he's found out to those who mean the most to him, and for them to tell him he got it all wrong and that life is far more fun than he ever thought it could be. Enjoy every moment, not this book, life. Written on good days and bad days. There were quite quite a few of them. Happy days and sad days. Days when I just didn't understand. And days when I thought everything was crystal clear. They're written to help prepare you for what might happen. Uh, Some things will, some won't. But I hope now that they won't catch you off guard. If even just one of the following helps you in whatever way, it will be of being worth writing. And... You don't have to read it all, but I hope that you will read bits. It's merely a guide, thoughts from 30 years, mostly my own, some from others I respect. I can't say if I would have taken any notice of them through my own life. Maybe you will. Thank you for even reading this far, Dad. We can go about this a couple of different ways. As you know, and as I've mentioned, I have this numerological symbolic thing happening with my life. So because I have this affinity for numbers, and I know that's also a physiological phenomena, like when you buy a car, you buy a red car, then all of a sudden you see a bunch of red cars on the road. There's some kind of a phenomena that happens that's got some level of scientific predictability. So I know that that's part of the phenomena of me with numbers. Mine is a bit off the charts, and I have personalized it, of course, because I've made it part of my personal branding and leveraged it as a brand. I mean, the Citizen 44 brand is me, and I've used it for the show. So I thought it would be interesting to at least look at some of these numbers that have become very personal to me and see how they correlate to some of the numbers in your manifesto here. That's a good idea. I thought the first number that would be good to look at would be maybe number one. Haha, <laughs> okay. It says, we are all our own religion. We need others to believe in us. The only way for this to happen is to believe in yourself first, your ability, your passion, your commitment, and your intellect. Now, every single person that you respect has incredible self-belief. Every single person that is famous for something, not just a celebrity for being a celebrity, but saying famous for source something, which is someone who's good at something or great or incredible at something, we respect them because they've believed in themselves enough to get to that top level. To keep going and keep going and keep going, think of every famous sportsman, you know, if you don't believe you can run faster than anybody else on the planet, you never will. If you don't believe you can ride a bicycle, 
you never will. It's all about self-belief. The whole of life is about self-belief. But there's also confidence in there. One of the things which was hurtful, it was quite sad. Um, my son said to me only recently, I wish you'd taught us to be more confident. Wow. I, I thought I had. I thought I'd given you the building blocks of confidence. But you can't pass on profound confidence if you don't have it yourself. It took me a very, very long time to feel confident. I felt as if I'm maybe 20 years behind where I should be in life. I've hung on to being a big kid for ages because in my industry in advertising, everyone knows the most creative part in your life is age of about three or four years old. And after that, it's drilled out of you. I try to be a big kid because it keeps my creativity going. And I think of things, the wild things, the amazing things, the awesome things, because I haven't grown up. And if I grow up and pretend that I'm something that I'm not for a start, that won't help either. But the confidence thing, I was hoping that um, my kids would be more confident. Your son became the teacher and you became the student. So you actually did do what you need to do. Yeah, there is that. There is that. And when I see Harry playing drums on a stage in his bands with 50, 100 people. He's profoundly confident on stage. He's fantastic. He's a wonderful drummer. And you think, well, that's confidence, mate. So you, you might wonder where your confidence is in other areas of life. I would like to go through just a few more of these, like 22, 33, and 44. <laughs> of course, because you want to have your numbers, of course. Yeah. All right. We can pick whatever you want. I'm just saying, I definitely want to see 44. Of course, Citizen 44. I'll give you one of yours, then I'll go to one of mine, which I like, and then I'll come back to 33, then 44. So 22, okay? Talent is only a fraction of what you need to succeed. Don't rely on it only. That is so in your wheelhouse. And because you are an executive creative director working in the advertising industry for as long as you've been doing it, that's so key to your life. Yeah, 2009 was a guy that um, I was very lucky to meet. I won't mention his name, but he happens to be an incredibly awarded creative in the advertising industry and the best agencies in London. I mean, this guy told me at one point he was earning £300,000 a year. That's like $400,000 a year. And in the UK, that's a hell of a lot of money. Um, there's an award in the UK called the DNAD, and um, he wasn't in the A list. He was in the A star list or A plus list. It wasn't about, are you going to get in the book this year? Because getting in the book, I mean, having one of your campaigns featured in the DNA annual was like the creme de la creme, absolute pinnacle of your career. It wasn't about getting in the book that year. It's like how many times you were in the book. When you're in the book four or five, six times, that's when you realize you're in the A star list. And that's what he was. Now, he got disillusioned with advertising and he got disillusioned with companies like Procter & Gamble giving you a um, guidelines book. Uh, that was six or 700 pages and two inches, three inches thick. He said, that crushes what we do. He said, that stifles and kills and destroys creativity. So you get told you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do this and you must do this, you must do this, you must do this. He said, this is absolutely the worst place to start creatively. So this guy with the most amazing talent on earth. So what he wanted to do was he wanted to start up an agency and he wanted me to join him. I just had to close my agency in 2008 1st of August 2008, three years to the day after starting it, the recession killed us. Also, partly, let me say, my naivety killed us, my naivety of a business. I thought that people wanted great work. They don't. It wasn't about that. They want great work. But really, it's easier to judge 
the cost of the work rather than the greatness of the work. If it's cheap, it must be good because that means I'm saving the company money. That means I might get a bigger balance. So the cheaper things are, the better they are. And I didn't understand that mentality at all. I'd proven that great campaigns would work. And if you cut them down, can we get it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper? They're going against what we actually do. What's the point of doing this? You're going to make millions and you're quibbling over thousands. What is going on here? He got very disillusioned with this. He wanted us to start up an IP agency to come up with brand new ideas, bringing them to market, which a lot of agencies do now. So he was very early days on that. He was very forward thinking. It didn't work. So this guy who went from earning £300,000 a year lost his house. He lost his house, lost his car. He lost everything. He didn't lose his marriage, but he went through a bloody tough time and he's back working in agencies now. Subtle to do a talent. This guy's got bucket loads of talent. You need luck. You also need friends who are going to pay you. But somebody said to me, this has always been in my head and I got offered to start an agency again recently. And this person asked me, what's stopping you? And I said, look, to start an agency, you don't need swanky offices. You don't need a cool logo and awesome website. You don't need business cards. You don't need laptops. You don't need desks. You don't need chairs. You don't need staff. You don't even need talent. You don't need talent to start an agency. You just need paying clients. Two words, not just clients. They have to pay you. You've got to make money. So you don't need anything other than people who are going to pay you to do what you do. It makes no difference if you think you are God's gift to your industry or not. If you haven't got people paying you, you will die. If you have got people paying you, you've got a chance. And this person said to me, so you don't have clients? No, I don't have clients. I've only just got back to the UK. But like this guy, he had bucket loads of talent, but you need an awful lot more than talent to get by. Okay, do you want to go to number 33? Yeah, let's do that one. Okay. Um, when you are happy, positive... Everyone wants to be with you. When you are down, there are a few left around. Very simple one. And I discovered this myself. Uh, when the black cloud follows you around, as it did in 2008, I had to close my business in 2008. I mean, it literally, I say goodbye to people and they're all crying. Not because they're losing their jobs, because they all knew they'd get better jobs elsewhere. And they did. They got great jobs. And they did really well. They were crying for me because I'd given everything. Every single ounce of my body I'd given this company and it still went down and I couldn't understand. I did not understand. It doesn't matter. You can put in 24 hours a day and you can still fail. And that's what's very hard. That's really, really harmful. So not only was my agency destroyed, my marriage was destroyed as well. February the 16th, 2008. My ex-wife said to me, the reason why I remember it is because I didn't sleep that night. Because she said, what's the point? Uh, and I said, well, I, ha I have to keep working. I've got an agency to support. I've got, you know, I've got people to pay. I've got some staff, you know, trying to get the clients in through the door. I've got new pictures to do. And everything that I spoke about was for the business. And once I'd finished this tirade, Max wife said to me, no, what's the point of us? And then you realize you've given your business everything, but you've given your partner nothing. She also once said to me, for you, Chris, work is number one. Number two is your kids. Number three is your family. Number four is your friends. And somewhere down at the bottom of the list is me. She was right. Yeah, she was right. And it didn't change. And we, that's why we got divorced. Um, 
I'm trying and have been trying for the last three years to uh, put work into perspective. There's this beautiful line which was written by Citibank years ago. Remember the people that you're working for are at home waiting for you right now. So, oh my God, yes. I don't work for my boss. I don't work for clients. That's what you've got to remember. You're working for your children. You're working for your wife. You're working for a nice life for them. Not to necessarily buy them a yacht or send them into space. One of the bits in the book is the most precious thing you will ever give is time. And yet it's often the hardest thing to give. I listened to your podcast with your daughter and you talked about, you know, we don't get much time to talk these days. You know, you're busy, I'm busy. Well, you're busier than I am. And I'm the same. I could spend all day every day talking to my children and all day every day playing with my little children who I'll see soon. I'm counting down the days. It's less than four weeks now before we get together again. Screw all the presents. Your children don't need a TV, a laptop, a, a tablet, a mobile phone, the swankiest one on the market. They don't need you to have three cars. They don't actually need massive holidays either. They just need you. They only need you. If you're not there, this is the reason why this book exists. They need your time. It's like a bank account. The more you invest your time in them, the bigger return you will get. If you put hardly any hours in, you'll get hardly anything back. If you can put stacks of money into them, great. But that's just an excuse because you haven't got time for them. So what are you making the money for? There's a word which is called enough, which I've been working around recently. I wake up at night sometimes and I have these flashes of inspiration. What is enough, mate? What's enough? Enough money? Enough time? Uh, enough privilege? Enough of putting up with... Shit, enough of dealing with people who are toxic. Have I had enough of my drink this morning? When will I have had enough? In fact, when will I have had enough of life? Will that ever come? I hope not. Did you ever see the experiment where they had a bowl of soup right. and they had a feeder tube on the bottom of it and they wanted to see if people would stop eating? They kept the bowl full and what they noticed was people did not stop eating. As long as it continued to remain full, they continued to consume it, wow. which was an incredible sociological experiment, which also goes back to the person you spoke to who their one wish is to be wildly rich. It's because they probably didn't get enough time. So they want to make up for that with something materialistic that can never replace what they can never get now again. But they have a line as well. This person has a line, which is, there is no dignity in poverty. And that comes from a place where someone has obviously suffered. Someone has obviously suffered during difficult times. And so have I. To a certain extent, they're right. There's no dignity in poverty. But is poverty wrong? Is it wrong that you're poor? Is it wrong that you haven't got enough money? I mean, how dare we put labels on people based on their bank accounts? Absolutely vile way to look at people. I used to live in Kingston in London. And in fact, 25 years ago, we bought our first house, me and my ex-wife. That house now is worth over six times what we paid for it then. It's crazy how much house prices are in the UK. And we were judged by the other parents that we knew. We had the smallest house of them all. We also had the oldest car of them all. But we had the busiest house of them all. We had the happiest house of them all. We had the house where everyone wanted to come round. We had the house which was never empty. 
not because we invited people, but because people invited themselves. Because we had a glowingly happy house, which everyone was thought was great fun and no one wanted to leave. And that's not just me, it was my ex-wife, it was our children, it was just our thinking, which wasn't based purely on showing off how much cash we got. Um, shall I get, jump on to number 44, mate? Yeah, let's hit 44. Okay. Again, every single one of them has a little story behind it. Um, respect animals. Everything has a right to be treated well. Be wary of those who treat pets badly. They value life less than you. Okay, so respect animals. Never hit an animal. Come on. And treat them well. We know what goes on in Vietnam still, sadly. I think it's on its way out. It's not yet, but uh, it's a bit grim. I mean, you could say, if you're going to respect animals, you're not going to bloody kill them and eat them, mate. You know, and Chris, you're still eating animals, right? So my middle daughter, who's a vegan, um, she wouldn't be particularly impressed with the fact that people still eat animals. Um, I've written here, but everything has a right to be treated well, even before it's slaughtered, shall we say. Uh, but be wary of those who treat pets badly. Pets, I'm saying pets, not all animals, but pets badly. They value life less than you. This came about when I was moving home years ago, and I won't say who it was, but um, we left our fish. There's only two of them, and it's just goldfish. And we left it with this family. I think it was a week later we'd done once we moved in, we had time. We were around to collect it. And absolutely horrified, the water inside was virtually black. You could barely see. Uh, I think they just overfed them, basically. But you could barely see the fish inside. And I immediately... And emptying out the water and quickly grabbing any bowl, plate, anything that I could put water in to get them out, to put them in some water. And you're not supposed to put them in water directly out of the tap in the UK because it's dechlorinated. So you basically you've got to let the water air for about an hour to get rid of the chlorine. But I had to weigh up the pros and cons. And they said, what are you doing? I said, I've got to get out of here. Why? Well, it's all right. I said, no. And my words came from nowhere. It's a septic hellhole. They've got to get out. They're going to die. And I pushed them straight into the sort of water, straight out of the tap. And they sort of came to the senses. All this crap came off them in that water. I emptied it out. And I thought, you don't respect animals, do you? This is, I know the fish, but nonetheless, you don't respect pets. And that spoke a lot to me. I thought, you don't have the same appreciation of life as I do. If that's the way you treat the things that live, I worry about you and I worry for you. So just watch how people treat their pets. Did you have any thoughts on that one? I'm not a pet guy. I find pets annoying. Annoying. Yeah, they're annoying. So there you go. I'm being very honest with you. I don't have pets here. People say, I love my cats. I love my dogs. I go, yeah, that's fucking great. But that's my problem. That's my issue. There's nothing wrong with the animals. Again, I'm just a douchebag. That's all there is to it. <laughs> Number five, uh, the wise man is he who listens when he would prefer to speak. When you talk, you say what you already know. When you listen, you can learn new things. Now, the second part of that line, uh, when you talk, you say things you already know. When you listen, you can learn new things. That's from the Dalai Lama. And I found that out by accident because uh, the first bit, the wise man, he's he who listens or when he prefer to speak. It's not mine, but I don't know where it's from. I've Googled that line. I heard that or read that many, many years ago. And I loved it. The wise man is he who listens when he prefer to speak. Now... I don't know where I read it, where I heard it from, but it's stuck in there. And I've Googled it, and it doesn't exist. 
right? So I've tried to even put the inverted commas around it. Nobody said that. What do you mean nobody said it? And if Google hasn't heard it before, I don't know where the hell I have. So when I got to China, 2016, working there, you know, it sounded like a Chinese proverb to me, uh, maybe Confucius say. And uh, I asked the Chinese, said, uh, have you ever heard this before? No. What do you mean you haven't heard it before? Let me submit it again. No, 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 Chris, it doesn't exist. No, no, really, I promise you. Never heard anything like that. Right, where the hell did I learn it from then? And then there's a woman in Vietnam, and she's a producer, and her great-uncle or uncle, I think his great-uncle, is the Dalai Lama. Wow. She's related to him. That's great-uncle Lama, whoever he is, what she calls him. And he said the version of it, which I repeated after that, when you talk like I do, that's why I'm stupid, because I just talk about the things that I've already heard. I need to learn to listen more. And that's why, actually, me listening to audiobooks or um, the podcasts, and I'm loving them. For the first time in a long, long time, I'm learning new stuff. It's often when you listen to these things that they resonate with you because they're things that you agree with wholeheartedly or they're making you remember, shit, I thought stuff like that. I've started writing things down again just to remind myself that I did think of that. The same thing happens in my career. I've, I've, I've been putting together recently all these award-winning ideas that I did before that did go on to win awards, but I didn't do them. They were the ideas I'd had. Ideas float around in the ether. Ideas are all around us all the time, and occasionally they land on us. Now, it doesn't mean to say they're going to happen. 2009, I think, maybe, or 2008, I was invited to go out to Slovenia in Europe to do a lecture. And I remember standing outside of the lecture theatre thinking... Where the hell is my hotel? I've got no idea where my hotel is. I can't read the street signs. I have no idea where I am. Great lecture. And thank you very much, Mr. Catchpole. Brilliant. Fantastic. And leave the building. It's like, where do I go now? And I thought, well, my mobile phone knows where I am. Why isn't there an app on my phone? I can say, I want to go here. So I copy and paste the address of the hotel, put it in, and it knows where I am because of the GPS, and it knows where the hotel is because of the GPS, and the taxi can come and get me and take me to the hotel. A bit like six years later, Uber. And did I make it work? No, I didn't make it work. I, I, I mean, that, that was just an idea at the time. And I've had loads of those ideas, and I'm sure you have too, but we need to make things happen. I'm considering at the moment, which is an idea worth nothing if it doesn't happen. If you think of something and you don't make it happen, is that your fault? Well, somebody's got to do it. It's about first to market. That's it. The ideas are floating out there. It's collective consciousness. It's the person that takes that thing and says, I can do it and does it. Colonel Sanders went bankrupt like 13 times before KFC became a successful franchise for him. So it's really about commitment, willingness to fail, and putting in the time and effort to make something happen. I feel that way about my podcast. I've said plenty of things that I was going to do, and I didn't do them. And I'm the master of saying something. But I told myself, and now I'm over 100 shows into it, I'm going to finally do something and I'm going to stick to it. It's not getting to the top of the mountain. It's taking the steps, taking steps, small steps. You don't have to look so far in advance that you see the impossibility of it. But if one just takes the steps towards the end result, eventually you will get there. Or even if you don't, at least you can feel satisfied that you took steps. But if you do nothing, you get nothing. Ideas are bullshit unless... You do something. Something. Yeah, it's true. 
Yeah, right. In the podcast with Jimmy Carr, he mentioned two books. I'm halfway through one and, and I got through the other one. This is a great way for me to zone out, to walk the streets, listening and learning. And I'm loving it. I really am. Um, so one's called Tribe, which is only about three hours or so. And that's very smart. Brilliant. And the other one is called Self. No, Selfie, I think it's called Selfie. And it's talking about how we determine the self and also what the self is in Asia versus what it is in the West. Because different, very, very different. And the priorities in life are very different. And actually, I kind of wish I'd known a lot of this before I came out to Asia. 2011, when I first originally went to Singapore, I wish I'd known a little bit more about the collective self versus the soul self. Because actually, I've been like Cicero for the entire time I've worked in Asia, I realized, which is pushing the giant ball up to the top of the hill only for it to roll back down again. That whole idea that to eternity, you're going to do a worthless job going to push this giant boulder which is incredibly hard up to the top of the hill and then it will roll straight back down again you have to do it again and again and again forever if you have no knowledge of asia working in asia that's what you do the more data the more information you have the better decisions you can make it's a fool's paradise to think that you can just bully your way through life yeah because you like your numbers i'm going to read you a three 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 ah okay we are all misfits the ones who seem to fit in everywhere are the oddest of all. I like to think that I speak the same way to the chief executive of companies as I do to the Bami seller on the street. Although I don't have a lot of language of the Bami seller on the street because she's Vietnamese and my Vietnamese is significantly less advanced than my three-year-old children. But I like to make sure that I don't revere someone because they're meant to be revered. And I certainly don't ever look down on anyone. So in the book, it's mentioned a few times actually about we should treat all people the same. You are never above anyone or below anyone ever unless you're forced to be. Those are not the exact words, and I couldn't find the quote now, but in my book, it really is about don't ever get belittled by anyone. The person who's doing that is a vile person. Um, but don't ever, ever look down on anybody. We're all here. We're all equal. Nee used to say to me, my sound guy, he said, why am you my friend? And I said, well, man, mate, I got lucky that I was born where I was, went to school, worked hard, I got my degree, I got a job and, you know, ended up earning reasonable money. I said, but that's lucky. I mean, yes, I've worked my ass off to make sure that look happens, but you didn't have the opportunity. I said, but the thing is, I said, mate, look, if you cut me and you cut you, same stuff comes out. We're all made of the same stuff. Yeah. If you flip us inside out, you can't tell us apart. Precisely. By the way, the reason that audio is becoming so popular is because the human voice is very powerful. Yeah. And we're now discovering the value in listening, which you referred to earlier. When you close your mouth and open your ears, new things can get in. We're so busy competing and arguing and screaming our story that nothing's getting in. It's all coming out. So we're not receiving, we're spouting. Oh, yeah. Even on YouTube, you can listen to audio things. I've got my TV here. I'll be cleaning my apartment and I can just listen. I just listened to The Tipping Point. It was a fantastic book, a fantastic audio experience. And uh, a lot of really great stuff that has to do with misfits. The brand Airwalk was built on this woman who would go and find these trendsetters, these odd people yeah. who were dressed funny and doing odd things and really kind of the underground. 
but we're really creating what was to be eventually in like a year. And that's how that brand went from zero to huge was that this woman would go look for the misfits and wait, and they would have a year incubator time to start building a campaign and a brand on what was coming. There's a lot more to that book. But the greatest auditory experience I've ever had was The Four Agreements, read by Peter Coyote, which changed my life overnight. I don't know if you're familiar with The Four Agreements. It's very simple. Toltec lessons, principles for life. If one practices these every day, you will always be conscious of what you're doing and you will make fantastic decisions. A lot of what you have brought to this document that you created for your children is an opportunity to consider, to think, to critically think, to absorb this information and watch how it plays out. Hindsight's all great, but if you don't leverage the lesson, if you don't have the information that you can use so you can make better decisions, that's why the public education system has failed human beings because it has not taught us how to be humans. Your document teaches someone how to be a human being. It is a pathway. These are bullet points on how to identify things that are 99% going to happen to you so you can feel comfortable in being in that moment and not failing. And even if you do fail and you know, you can pick yourself back up and get another shot at it. But we don't teach people how to be people and you can see the result of that. And it's quite disheartening, I must say. No, you're right. We don't teach people how to be people. I suppose that's what this is for. Well, you buy a car, it comes with an owner's manual. You can see every piece of the car. You can troubleshoot the car. It has all this information. But when you come into the planet, you come with nothing and nobody tells you anything. And you have to learn everything without any kind of mentorship. There's billions of us on the planet. This is a teacher-student relationship that we all have. I started to write the Human Being Owner's Manual with a friend of mine who was a brilliant man, so talented, amazing, and then he got thrown in prison and I didn't carry the torch. And I think this podcast is a bit of my torch, even though I didn't finish the project. You've written a version of the Human Being Owner's Manual. There's been a lot of this. Tolstoy, Huxley, all these people have given us the Human Being Owner's Manual, but it's never been put in a concise, singular document where one person can look at like an owner's manual for an automobile and go, oh, that's what happened and that was the result. Oh, oh, that's what that does. Oh, that's what that is. But we haven't even done that for ourselves after being here hundreds of thousands of years. We're fucking idiots, man. We're so stupid. We're mental. We're all mad. And we do the things that collectively, we, we, we are, we're mimicking each other bizarrely. And there's loads of studies. This book, on this selfie book, is talking about that set that um, we mimic other people because we think what other people are doing is right. One of the greatest things I ever heard, I was on Instagram and an advertisement came up and this guy said, out of 100 people, don't listen to 99 of them. Out of 100 people, 99 people have no idea what they're talking about. Do not listen to them. <laughs> And it was this profound smack in the face. It's true, but you just don't know which one the one is. (laughs) Well, that requires discernment and critical thinking. And we haven't taken the time to think for ourselves. It's so important that we really go inside and contemplate, take the time necessary for ourselves to see if this is our truth or are we only subscribing to everybody else's. My closer thing would be... Be open. 
be open to learning. And also I, I say to my kids, don't ever stop learning. Keep learning or you die. If you're not learning, if you're not being open to what the world has to show you and to, and to the people you can learn from, then you're just withering away. Yeah, for sure. And on top of that, be willing to change your mind because that is an incredible growth process to admit that you were wrong and that you can subscribe to something else. How empowering is that to toss your ego away and feel like you're more? You can feel more. Yeah. I love you, Chris. And I, I really appreciate that you came on the show and had this really uh, very meaningful conversation with me. You're a star, mate. I only appreciate it. Yeah, you too, man. Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was really great to have Chris on the show. Really enjoyed hearing about this 365 days of solid information. Really reminded me of this human being owner's manual project that I actually went and looked at and I have all the files sitting on Google Drive. I went through some of it and I didn't realize that Will Sylvester, who's the man that I was working on this project with, I didn't realize we got so much done. So maybe it's time that I get back in that and finish my commitment. I looked up his email address and sent Will a message. I haven't heard back, but he and I became incredibly close very fast, kind of a brother from another mother situation. And, and our relationship got disrupted in a very strange and challenging way because we were really on a good path. We were writing a script for a movie, doing this human being owner's manual, all this stuff. And then uh, he got taken away. It was some kind of a federal charge early on. He was growing weed illegally back when, you know, you couldn't do it. And then he got in a fight with some guy. He got provoked because of some girl that baited him. And uh, I guess it broke his parole. And they threw him in the federal pen. And uh, I, I didn't hear from him again. So I'm going to go through that stuff and check it out and see if I can commit myself. Because I know writing a book is really a bitch of sitting down every day and doing it. But, you know, I've got the time right now. I'm in the best place I can be to do that. Yeah, okay, I just convinced myself while doing this that I'm going to do that. So there you go. The official human being owner's manual. Never too late to do something. You know, I've mentioned before, I've said I was going to do a lot of things and didn't follow through. I have followed through with 105 shows of this podcast and will continue. I have followed through with this relationship. After beating the crap out of each other, Lean Ann and I have figured out how to be together unconditionally, and it's the best. Happy birthday again, Dad. It's really fantastic. 84 and doing his thing. He'll be in his new place tomorrow. Life begins at 84 for Norm Aaronsburg. No middle name. He said his parents couldn't afford one. So happy to have him in my life. Again, thanks, Chris, for being on the show. I want to thank everybody for sending in their birthday wishes. I want to thank Sandy. I want to thank Lean Ann for letting me put her on the show. I want to thank everybody who has supported me unconditionally in my quest to live my life my way. There's a new series on Netflix, How to Change Your Mind. I highly recommend this. I've got what I want. And that's what I told Lee Nan yesterday, going for one of my long walks. I said, you know, dear, I have everything that I could ever want. And she said, yes, I too have enough. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. 
All shows can be heard on Apple, Amazon, CastBox, Spotify, and Stitcher. Really appreciate you listening to the show. Again, I know it's been a little bit, but I'm back at it with a whole new bit of energy. Stay healthy, eat well, drink a lot of water, take walks 45 minutes a day, sweat your ass off, take a different route to work, do something different, you'll get a different result. I love you. Take care. Bye-bye. Additional music for today's show provided by Gene Burnett, geneburnett.com, and Robbie Lindauer, robbylindauer.com. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. (laughs) I am Citizen 44. to me when I call who's a good dog who's a good dog who sits by me when I fall who's a good dog who is always up for fun who's a good dog who's a good dog who likes running in the sun who's a good dog who is loyal who is true Who makes every day brand new? Who would like a bone to chew? Who's a good dog? Who don't cry when he's alone? Who's a good dog? Who's a good dog? When I'm lost, who gets me home? Who's a good dog? Smarter than a cat Who's a good dog? Who's a good dog? Who knows where that squirrel's at? Who's a good dog? Who has always got my back Made me leader of the pack Doesn't mind the things I lack Who's a good dog? Who's a good dog? Who will always be my friend? Who's a good dog? Who protects me without fear? Who likes a scratch behind the ear? Who is never insincere? Who's a good dog? Who comes to me when I call? Who's a good dog? Who's a good dog? Who just loves to chase that ball? Who's a good dog?